Before we begin, I'm happy to announce the release of my newest book, Conscious Conduit, A Dowser's Guide to the Business of Ascension. This book is a new addition to my first book released in 2018. In this revised and expanded edition, I go into more detail about how you can use dowsing to expand your own consciousness, improve your life, and how to turn your dowsing hobby into a thriving business. The book is available in print or ebook form and retails for only $9.99. I'll be bringing copies with me whenever I make personal appearances, but you can get your own copy today at Amazon.com. And now, for today's podcast. Welcome to High Vibes with your host, Bill G. At High Vibes, we're looking into what it means to be a fourth-dimensional being in an ever-changing world. We hope that by listening to our podcast, you can feel a greater sense of peace and connection as we collectively raise our energetic vibration to the next level. And now for today's podcast. Hello and welcome to High Vibes. I'm your host, Bill G. And today's special guest is Tashina Nebadam. Tashina <laughs> is a death doula and we had the pleasure of meeting each other at a psychic fair that i was doing at the wilson castle in proctor and uh, she happens to be a fellow resident of rutland vermont same as me so we are like super local to each other and uh, while we were talking at the uh, the psychic fair we she mentioned that she is a death doula and do and does uh, hospice work as well so uh, i thought it would be a great idea to bring her on the show especially since this episode will be airing on halloween so talking about death and dying would be a, is appropriate for halloween and so here we are and uh welcome to the show thank you thank you <laughs> so this is something I usually ask guests on the show when we come on is what inspired you to get into death doula work? Well, first of all, before we even get into that, what is a death doula and how did you find find yourself getting into that kind of work? So the thing is, most people think the death doula is one that is entering you into death, like they're trying to help you in your life. Um, but that is the complete opposite. A death doula, for me anyway, is all end of life care. So it can be as early as a person having a terminal illness and they want to get their 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 belongings and everything in order for end of life. That can be companionship because they don't have any family members and they know that they're actively dying and they don't have much longer and they want to spend time with someone and talk to someone just about uh, what happened in their life. That could be actual caregiving. I don't go too deep into that, but um, assisting with that as well. That's advanced directives. That is just anything that has to do with transitioning. You know, it's uh, bereavement. It's uh, some of everything, but it doesn't necessarily have to be someone that's actively dying. It can be a senior that decided that they want to plan out everything so that their family don't scramble when that day comes. And we go really good hand in hand with uh, hospice care. So it would be almost like having an additional person that can extend their services a little further than maybe the hospice normally can on a day-to-day -day basis. 
Actually, I had a friend of mine when I lived back in New Jersey, um, and she uh, she was uh, uh, from the Jewish faith, and she and doulas are very very prominent in the Jewish faith. They've been going back for thousands of years. And when uh, my wife was pregnant with my uh, with my son, uh, she was our birth doula, and so what she was the function she was doing was, I mean, we had a midwife, we had a, a doctor. And so her function was just to be, like you said, that support for bringing that new life into existence. So a death doula, if I'm gathering you correctly, is this somebody who actually helps with more of the logistics side of death and dying, even if it's emotional support or also the making sure that they've got their will, last will and testament updated. They've got their finances in order. They've got the names of their beneficiaries, and and the beneficiaries are still living, and all that stuff. And having all, all that in order, is that correct? Yes, and a large part of it, and how I kind of got into it was me being a hospice social worker. Some of that legality part is what I did in that social work hospice role. The advance directive, the telling them what funeral options they have, identifying funerals, giving them a list with prices and what they expect because the family, they're going through so much at that time that the last thing they want to do is all of this research. And a lot of people, a family member could have been a hospice for two years. They still did not ever think this moment was going to come. And so a lot of the times they still didn't plan, even though this person's been on there that whole time. And so... Um, what it would consist of is last minute me, me trying to get them to identify a funeral, actually calling the funeral home to come to the house because they're trying to spend those last moments with the deceased. Some of everything, it's really just helping them see like, you know, you're going to need this, you're going to need this and just kind of getting it. And there are people, like I said, that they wait to the very last minute where they realize that their dad isn't breathing. And so I'm like, well, remember, we talked before and you said your mom went here and you would consider it. Is it okay if I call them to come pick your dad up? So it's just those type of things. You know, it's like being that sound mind to kind of help in that moment as well. So I am used to being at actual pronouncements and just assisting the families with that immediate acute, you know, death situation and following up with bereavement as well. So kind of like the, the voice of reason when everybody's too emotional to make a clear decision. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely have some some stories. <laughs> yeah. uh, without naming any names, can you give us a, a good story of where your services were were extremely valuable for someone's end of life care? At one hospice that I worked with in particular, we used to go to the pronouncements with the nurse. So when the family would call before they would call anybody else, they would call us. We would get there first and then we would assist them from there. Um, so I had one patient that. I knew from the time I started working with them that she was not acceptable to talking about her mom actually passing. She'd been on hospice for years and years and years, and she was the prime caregiver. She would not leave her side. She never left the house since her mom got sick. She was just home with her mom all the time. People went to the store for her. They did stuff for her, but she would not leave. And how I knew that we built a rapport was because close to the very end, she allowed me to be in the room alone with mom. From before she would be in there the whole time. So this one particular day, um, I get a call from 
the aides who were bathing her and in the process of her getting bathed, uh, she started to expire, right? And the daughter came in, they, they told the daughter, the daughter came in and, and she literally shook her mom back alive. I am not kidding. She shook her. And it was just so crazy. So the next day I go over and we once again saw her fading again, trying to expire. And um, she ended up expiring. And this time the end up getting bathed again, because that was the only, one of the only times the daughter would leave the room and let her be alone with someone else. She expired again. This is the very next day. Same time. Same time. And they didn't say anything until they finished bathing her this time. So as soon as she finds out, I get called, I come over. And when I get over there, you know, she's, of course, ecstatic. And I'm calling the funeral home. And the first thing I do when I when I come through the door, she sees me. She's always been a person people consider hard to, to please. She was a very stern woman. That was just like her personality, like a stern teacher. And she was a teacher, actually. And so... I go in there and the first thing I do is I, I lock eyes on her and we immediately hug. I just hug her for a long time. Just hug her. Just hug her. And then when she let go, I asked, you know, and she had family there. The house was packed. I, I asked, you know, do you need me to call a funeral home? Do you need anything? You know, and just trying to see what she needed. But that was a hard one because the whole time I was working with her, I was like, I don't know what's going to happen with mom passed. I don't know how she's going to take it because her whole life was her mom for about two years. Wow. And before that was her dad, you know? And so her mom was choosing the time of her passing when her daughter was not in the room because she knew that her daughter would not handle it well. Yeah, yeah. She used to talk around her, even though her mom was not responsive for a while. She would talk around her. And she would say how she did. And when they were alone, she told me she would tell her, like, don't leave me. You know, she literally was telling her mom that. Wow. So she knew I cannot leave while she's in here. Wow. And so, so when she finally did pass, you were there to help be the voice of reason again in in a in a room full of chaos. Definitely. Now, did, now I'm stay there until the funeral home takes the body out. I talk with family. I stay around a little bit longer and then I'll just follow up in a few days. I, I usually go to the funeral also. Okay. How was she at the funeral? At the funeral, she was good and I touched bases with her a week later. And um, you know, she was still sad, but she was doing a lot better than I thought she would. And I remember talking to her and trying to get her to look more into the future. Like, you know, what are you going to do now? Are you going to go on that trip we talked about? You know, you know, are you considering going back to work? Because at this point, she had been out of work for so long. Because like I said, she went from dad to mom. And um, she was like, I don't know, you know, but I know I want to do something. I want to go somewhere. And I said, just think about someplace she's always wanting to go. So. You know, if you consider it from mom to dad, I think she had been a caregiver for at least four years, you know. Right. Okay. So uh, what kind of uh, training or certification does a death doula require? So it's funny that you say that there is no mandated requirement. 
But I did want to go that route because it does give you some authenticity with, you know, showing, hey, I did go through this. I did get some additional training from someone that's been doing death doula for a while, even though I felt like I've already had that experience. But it was just something that I wanted to add to my resume, if you can, even as far as a um, universal or a um, a national like a board or department or something that's over it is not one that's something that they have in the works right now for deaf doulas but I actually did a um a deaf doula program called Ontario School of Universal Energy so it's located in Ontario Canada and it was about two months worth I think we did like two classes a week and did the training, and then we did a test at the end, and then we got official certificate. They are pretty linked with several different doulas um, services in North America, but like I said, it's not one giant entity. It's not as um, universal in the definition of what you know you need and stuff. So as of now, someone could just wake up one day and say, "I want to be a deaf doula." Okay. <laughs> So um, you started off with a, a master's in social work. Now, so master's in social work is a, a fairly broad category. You can do all kinds of different stuff doing with a master's in social work. First of all, what was your original intention when you started going through this? And how did you end up doing hospice and end-of-life care? Um, so I started, so my undergrad was in sociology. I knew I wanted to do something clinical, as you will had no clue. Um, I ended up getting into social work. My track was clinical, which is why I started in psychiatric facilities. I started on that clinical side with diagnosing, working with, you know, severely persistent, you know, um, psychological diagnosed people for a state hospital in Georgia. I did that. And then I worked at a private hospital simultaneously. I did that for several years. And after getting completely burned out, I said, I want to try another aspect of social work because like you said, it is so broad, so many things you can do. So you have the, you have the clinical track. You also have like the administrative track when it comes to social work. My school had those two tracks. And um, so when I got into the clinical track, of course, I went the most known clinical route, which was psychiatric facilities. And after getting burnt out from doing all of that simultaneously, I said, well, I want to try something different. And that led me into medical. So the position that I applied for for hospice, I don't remember applying for, but I was probably on Indeed just clicking and sending the, you know how they have the instant Indeed application? <laughs> I must have done that because all I know is I got a call and I agreed to go to this interview for what I did not know hospice, you know, what it was in its entirety. I probably knew the scratch surface of what it was. And I went in this interview and I said, yeah, I don't really know any of this. <laughs> and it was um, two people interviewing me and the other social worker that was there because they were adding on two social workers because they had one for the longest. And they said, um, would you be able to touch a dead body? I said, I don't know. I would have to try. <laughs> And months later, I touched their body and it did not bother me. So, you know, I I was like, I'm going to try this. I'm going to see what happened. And actually, it was very comforting to me. People tell me all the time, like, end of life must be really sad for you. Even people that work at the hospital with me now. And I'm like, no, it is the most fulfilling work I've ever done. 
um, surprisingly, because me as a social worker, to be able to work with someone one day and to be able to be there with them to literally the very end and see the the fruits of my labor is fulfilling to me. I know that what I did made a difference because I'm there to see the end results. And a lot of times in social work, you don't. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I, I've heard tale of social workers who like they work with uh, youth and family services or they work with uh, a lot of state workers or are, are social workers. And and yeah, there's there is a um, there's a high burnout rate because mm -hmm. the work never ends. And sometimes you are witnessing someone getting worse rather than getting better or a family situation deteriorating rather than getting better. And mm -hmm. I suppose in this particular instance, uh, there is an end point. You know, eventually the the client is going to expire and there's going to be some closure. So I can see where that can be very, very satisfying in a sense that you are now providing closure for the family and you are and your clinical training and your social work training really comes into uh, into at the fore with this particular way of doing things. Mm -hmm. So what if for somebody who is out there wondering, do I need a death doula? And so give me the sales pitch real quick. What so I'm thinking to myself, say I've got my uh, my my mother-in-law is 81, but she no, she's not anywhere near close to expiring yet. But she's you know she's getting older, and I'm not quite sure. You know, there's a lot of things that say I'm having a hard time dealing with this whole thing. What is the value of bringing on a death doula in uh, for my mother-in-law's uh, end of life care? In terms for your mother-in-law, even though she may not have any terminally um, diagnosis or any chronic diagnosis or, you know, she's not, you know, acutely dying, uh, one of the main things is, like, have she decided, uh, have she set up a will? So, for example, in the hospital, a lot we say, do you have an advanced directive? A lot of people don't even know what that is. And I, I define it as, I say, do you have an advanced directive or a living will? It's not the same as your will. <laughs> I am not asking you who's taking over your home. I'm asking you who's going to make that decision of whether or not you get a feeding tube when you can't talk and make that decision on your own. You don't have to be 88, 78, even 68 to have a paper like that on file at your, your local hospital. You can have a car accident and not be able to verbalize what's going on with you. But a lot of people say, oh, no, I'm not old enough for that. And I'm like, that's not something that has an age range on it. So I do want to mention that. the, the I, Actually, I, I have something to add on that. For the state of Vermont, they have an excellent um, advanced directive program that is actually administered by the state governments. Yeah, the Vermont Advanced Directive Registry. Literally, when people complete them at the hospital, I send it in the email to them. You get a reply back saying, we've received it. If you hear back from us, something is incomplete about this application. If you don't, we've accepted it and it's now on file. Once it's on file, any hospital, any doctor's office, any medical facility can pull up your advance directive in the state of Vermont. So for your mother-in-law, it would be getting an advance directive. It would be if she does want to get in contact with getting a will. 
it's getting long-term Medicaid or choices for care if you guys start to feel like maybe she need a little more attention or talking about senior um, living that she may want to get to when she gets to a level where she don't feel quite safe at home and you guys don't feel quite safe with her being at home. A lot, a lot of people don't know, like a lot of insurances have their own long-term care. It doesn't have to be the federal Medicaid long-term care. You can get long-term care through your insurance that you've had while you were working. So that's something that can be discussed while you're a working individual. Like, how do I pay into this? So 30, 40 years from now, if I decide I don't want to be a burden on my family, I want to live in a senior residence, how do I go about making sure that I'm able to afford that? That is also financial proxies on top of the healthcare proxy, because an advanced directive is a healthcare proxy. What about a financial one? I have someone now, they're now really gone and demented and they're in the hospital and they got nobody. And before they came in, they had the capacities to make their own decisions and now they can't tell us anything. What do we do with their money? What do we do with their house, their car, their belongings as a hospital? So it's a long, 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 long process to try to help this person get placement and to get the help they need in the community because they're not mentally capable. They have a, a mental, a cognitive deficit. So we don't want them signing stuff, but there's no guardian on file. There's no healthcare proxy. There's nothing. So what do you do? Because they never did an event directive. So it's it's all of those things. And I know I meet some elderly people coming in the hospital and they're pretty capable of completing their ADLs, but it's some of the independent stuff like maybe cleaning that's becoming hard for them. Maybe cooking. Maybe they don't drive anymore and they need help to get to the store. So in those instances, doing those white things to help. And let's say all of their kids live out of state. Someone is in California. Someone's in Idaho. They keep in contact and stuff, but they're not locally there to make sure their mom have those little things. And she doesn't have anyone because she's quote unquote 88 now. All of her friends and family's dead. I hear some people say that. So, you know, who do they go to now? Um, so it's definitely just planning ahead because sometimes people don't want to accept when mom falls and mom goes in the hospital. It's a possibility mom's never going to be back to that independence that she was at. For an older person, it takes one fall to really decline permanently. Mm-hmm. And then the family never planned, what do we do now? Looking at all of those perspectives. So now you're not trying to decide and you're in the hospital saying, we can't take her home now. We can't care for her. We don't live here. We're like, well, maybe you should have thought of these things in the in the long run. But you find that the uh, the just like with that client you were describing earlier, there are a lot of people who just don't want to think about it. They that they have such an emotional um, attachment or emotional block when it comes to end of life care that they just want to assume that well, mom's going to live forever, and I just won't except that she is going to die even though she's in her mid 90s she's got dementia she's got there you know she is she is visibly declining but they just won't accept that and that's mm-hmm. a and and that's something that uh it's it's about being in the here and now um i actually have a couple of elderly clients that i work with uh with my akashic dowsing work and uh and what we work on is end of life issues and um, you know, people who are in their mid eighties, you know um, I have one client where all of his friends have died and 
half his family has died, uh, not married, no kids. And fortunately, this person has a lot of, um, still has all his marbles and knows that needs to have certain things in place. But like you said, he comes into the hospital emergency room because he had a slip and fall and now he's, or he's had a heart attack or a stroke and Mm -hmm. that's not good. The work that we're doing around the Akashic dowsing is trying to figure out what is their high self trying to tell them as far as their own end of life care or just their, their present care, because like right now they're in good health. And so when we read the Akashic dowsing or we, we read the charts, we get to a point where we're like, okay, this is where your present moment is. And so everything you're doing right now, good on you. You're making all the changes you need to make. However, and I always bring in that caveat, however, you need to be prepared to change on a dime should something happen because the the charts don't tell you what's going to happen tomorrow. They're only telling you what's happening right now in this moment. They're not predictors of the future because you have a stroke tomorrow or you break a hip tomorrow everything that's on this list right now of everything you've taken care of, we get to throw that out the window and we have something completely different and you need to have a plan in place. And so I do advise my clients that way, especially the ones that are you know, elderly or who, who are at risk for this type of thing. But it also goes for people who are younger than that too, because you never know. And it's getting people to understand that that it's, it's no age on, on death. Luckily, though, I've only dealt with elderly people who had come to a place where they were accepting their death. So I tell people that all the time, like when it comes to, you know, the age and stuff, that it really doesn't matter. Um, and I got into my story and I don't know where I was going with that, but I had an individual that I was I was meeting with and I said, hey, you know, I was thinking about coming to see you on Monday. Is that okay? And they said, no, you know, I'm not going to be here on Monday. I'm like, you're not going to be here. You know, where are you going? And they're like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to pass over the weekend. I'm going to, my family's coming to town. I'm going to spend time with my family and I'm, I'm going to go. And I came in on Monday and that person had expired on Sunday. Wow. So he knew. <laughs> he knew um, that a lot too, or seeing someone at a certain level and, letting their family know that I don't think they have long because there are certain signs that I see in them. Um, so different things like that. Well, well, what are, what are, what are some of those signs that you see that, that when you know that someone is not long for this world? One of the things is they have this thing you call the rattle breathing or they call it the fish out of water. When a person is breathing, it sounds like kind of, Mm-hmm. Then it's one of those things where like the whole body is kind of going in and like they just constantly have that sound. Another thing is they tend to get this gloss over their eyes. All of a sudden their eyes get this gloss that it never had, almost like a doll's eye. Um, another thing is sometimes you'll kind of see the facial feature, almost like the cheek is going in. Um, and it's not the same as like not eating as much, which we know that's also a sign, a person not eating, a person not sleeping well. Another thing is they tend to kind of pick on their clothes, like the clothes is irritating their skin. They tend to look up into corners a lot. And sometimes they verbalize, they'll start to throw out names of people that's been deceased for years and years and years. And they'll look up, they'll look up, they'll look up. 
So they're so, so they're seeing they're seeing spirits. They're seeing their 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 loved ones coming to see them. Yeah, they'll start talking about their mom, and you'll be like, "Oh, their mom. When did they?" And they'll be like, "Their mom passed in '78." And I'd be like, "Oh, okay." And they'll be like, "She hasn't talked about them in ten years, but for some reason, these last three days, she's been talking about her mom." So, and I I try to explain those things to them. Like I think she's trying, she's showing you things that she's getting very close to that threshold of not being here with you. Um. So it's, it's a lot of those things, but, you know, you see a, a change in temperature. Sometimes they feel warmer. Sometimes they feel colder. Um, the skin seems to, to feel a little different. So it's like those telltale signs that, like, they're really getting there. And another biggie, I don't know if a lot of people know this, is that there's this period where someone's been going down slowly and they're showing no signs. And then one day they perk up. They might want ice cream. They might start talking. And then I, I had a patient, I told her that, I said, please don't think mom's getting better. I said, I really think that this is what it is. And mom went down and mom passed two days later. And she was like, no, no, she she ate ice cream for me. And she did this. I said, she is getting in that last good day with me. I yeah, said, yeah. I promise you, after today, you're not going to see that again. So um, I have this end of life book. It's my favorite one. It's like a little pamphlet. And it breaks down like you see these signs within the last couple months. You see this within the last week. You see this within the last days. And it, it shows that. And when we feel like they're transitioning is when I go through the book with them. And when they ask, so, or if they ask me, how much longer do you think she have? I go through it and they go, I've seen that. I tell oh, you have. This is listed on in the next three months. And they'll say, oh, I saw that. And be like, oh, okay. Well, so I let them go through that instead of saying, nope. I think mom got one more day. No. You know, it, at the end of the day, it's not in my hands to say, but I do definitely just go through it and let them kind of see like this is what you're seeing. So. Okay, that's very that's very very interesting. So, if people wanted to reach out to you for your services, how can they contact you? Now, I understand you're in the Rutland, Vermont area. Um, I assume that you are you. You basically work in person with people. You don't really uh, you branch out beyond like remote work or anything like that, right? I would prefer not to, but I am willing to do some remote. Um, one of the other things I forgot to mention is I do help with kind of mediating and educating families on it. Because sometimes there is some some um, friction between families with decision making when you have different children at different places. So something like that, I think, can be done on Zoom. Even though I would prefer to do that in person, but maybe even breaking down, completing the application and kind of what to do, or even maybe an original consult. I could do those um, in person if maybe they're a little bit further. So uh, where can people find you on Facebook? People can find me with, at under End of Life Doula Tashima. Excellent. Now, when now is uh, is death doula generally covered by insurance, or is this usually out of pocket? It's usually out of pocket, but definitely worth it. I mean, it sounds like that uh, you know you can have all these clinical people, you can have your nurses and your doctors and your funeral directors, and you know all these people who are some of them are covered by insurance, some of them aren't. Mm -hmm. But where your where all that lacks is the peace of mind that comes along with this process and that's where the doula comes in place here that that to provide that closure to provide that that means to get to that final destination 
without a whole lot of stress. And so I, I think it's very, very much worth it. Or for the people who aren't really ready for palliative care or hospice, but they do want some of that end of life stuff kind of planned out. Um, but someone can also get that in addition to palliative and hospice as well. I do want to reiterate that because some people feel like it might clash right. and it won't. The same way you have a whole team of hospice individuals who can only give you but so much because they have so many people. A death doula, a lot like a birthing doula, when they sign on with you, they are saying they're going to be with you throughout this whole process and they're available 24-7 to be able to assist you in any way. So it's the same in that sense. Right. And that, and that can be invaluable, especially when you're dealing with somebody who doesn't have a whole lot of family or they have a family where it's a dysfunctional family, where things are not exact, things are not going the way they should be going or that people have emotional problems or addiction problems or you know, there's all kinds of stuff happening and you need that additional support to get through that. Or family want a point of contact, a person that can check on mom and update them and say, hey, this is how your mom's been lately when I've been checking in on her, you know, because like you said, there are people who live for two hours away and they only can visit so often. And if emergency happens, who's going to be able to go and assist mom if she needs it? And so even on, on instances like that would be valuable as well. And, and as a final note, I, I, I want to encourage anybody who's listening is that the advanced directive, whether you live in Vermont or any other state that you live in, Getting an advanced directive is absolutely imperative, no matter what your age, no matter how what your family situation is. That way you can know for certain that your final wishes are going to be um, adhered to no matter whether or not you have the ability to make decisions on your own or not. And you especially want that you know, right now, hey, I'm I'm in good health. I'm and things are okay. But you can get into a car accident tomorrow, and all of a sudden, you can't talk anymore, yeah. or you have a traumatic brain injury, and all no. Now, now you don't have the ability to um, express your wishes. If you really don't want to be on the ventilator, or you what if you want to name a specific person in your family that you trust, or you're going to name somebody who is not in your family who you trust to make those medical decisions for you because it automatically defaults to next of kin in the event that you don't have this directive in place. And it could be that that person, that next of kin person is someone you do not want making decisions for you, at least those end of life decisions for you. So that's why getting that advanced directive is so, so, so important and more important, and I, I think, than a, than a will. And I want to interject with, for some people who kind of go to different states, so you stay on the border, how we have some people in New York that come and get medical attention in Vermont, each state only recognize their own. But there is another document that is an event director called the Five Wishes, and a lot of states recognize that. And that can be almost like a universal thing. If you are a person who travel a lot or you just kind of live between two states or anything along those lines. It's called Five Wishes, and you can complete that, and it's an advanced directive, and the majority of the states recognize that as well. Excellent. So it was wonderful for you to come and, and talk to us today, and everyone, thank you very much for listening, and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening. 
For more information about Bill and Nina G, please go to www.vitalbioenergetics.com. See you next time. Thank you.